Thank you all for being here this morning. Okay. I'm just looking to see, so I can't, so this is much better than me seeing only one person, but um, I can't see everybody. Welcome, Rochelle, nice to see your face. <laughs> Rochelle is joining us, I think from Ohio, is that right? Yeah, welcome. Okay. Uh, let's begin by having human bodies for a second. <laughs> Looking yanked into our the Zoom brain. Um, let's just sit for for a minute or or several. And I just wanted to invite us to come into our our physical embodied reality. What's happening in this human body? And specifically this morning, if it works for you and you'd like to, I wanna invite um, paying attention to the breath. Come into the body and feeling the, the fullness of uh, the, the stillness of a lot of the body and the movement and the, the functioning of the human breath and the vitality of that life-giving process. I don't know how many breaths we've all taken in our lifetimes, but see if you can actually feel the sweetness of the inhalation, the refreshment of that, the, the life-giving force of that. and the relief of the exhalation. This deep exchange of the most kind of intricate and intimate internal processes of our body and, and the environment around us happening all the time. And see if you can also have a feeling, which is just an invitation to see if you can locate a feeling of the privilege of it. This capacity to breathe has not been taken from us yet. It one day will be. and the sweetness of breathing, the gift of breathing now. And while we're here, I wanna offer the words that um, Zen teacher Zenju Earthland Manuel has offered recently in an essay called, a very brief essay called The Dark Darkness is Asking to be Loved. By now we have lost the tiny sense of peace we created for ourselves. Our composure is an idea long gone reflected in the grinding of our teeth and locked jaws. If you are still holding up, trying to meditate, I invite you to fall down, fall down on the earth. Come down here and smell the sweat of terror on your skin, overpowering scent of agarwood. Come down on all fours and greet the darkness that reeks of death, reaches out its desperate hand and asks to be loved as much as we love the light it gives. Come down here on this earth and breathe for those gasping for air. Hear each scream as a bell that never stops ringing. Bury your face 
in the mud of this intimate place in the shared disease and tragedy. If you have nothing to say, now is the time for the deeper silence honed that does not apologize or seeks something kind to say. And yet the deeper silence is not quiet. It whispers in the dark and wakes you from the nightmare. Come down here and be still on the earth. Let loose shame, rage, guilt, grief, pain, and make a river of it. Come down here. Catch the love poems hidden in the shouting. Watch the unfolding of the seasons from the ground. Look up at the sky. And when it hurts from being down here so long, roll over and see what you couldn't see from the other side. Breathe out loud, no particular posture needed. Fall down onto the earth, fall off your soft cushions. Come down here, come down here, where the only lullaby tonight will be the sound of your heart drumming the songs you were born with. I wanted to begin with Zenju's words um, because they're beautiful and profound <laughs> and helpful. And also um, because it's important, it's essential for white Dharma teachers like myself to hear and elevate and make room for and listen to the teachings of Dharma teachers of color. In fact, in, in every realm, it is essential for those of us who are identified as white to step back and follow the lead of people of color who have been holding this pain their whole lives and have the humility to um, so know that if we're white, um, that's a different situation for us in the United States and many places. My hope for today was um, the last time I talked, I talked about the, the first point of the Lojong training system, um, which is a Tibetan Buddhist system for um, developing and cultivating compassion. And, and my hope for today was to talk about the third point, which is, which uh, the slogans in that point focus on, or the theme is transforming difficult, challenging circumstances into the path, which as you can see is, is apropos. But as I was working on this talk in the past number of weeks, I couldn't get past the first point again. <laughs> So I'm sticking with the first point. And the first point not only has one slogan, which is ground in the preliminaries, which I talked about about a month ago, but I'd like to, to stay here, grounding in those preliminaries and looking at what the teaching of that offers to us. The, the grounding in the preliminaries is asking us to, uh, every time we engage in the world, we engage, uh, sorry, just looking, there's a chat. Uh, who said, okay, somebody can't hear me. Can people hear me okay? okay. Every time we, we, we want to move into the world in skillfulness and in wisdom and compassion, we are asked to ground in meditation. So grounding in meditation is, is the one half of grounding in the preliminaries and the other is to ground ourselves in the, the, daily, the four daily contemplations. And the four daily contemplations, again, are the preciousness of human life. So contemplating the preciousness of human life, the inevitability of death, the potency of karma, and the truth of suffering. And um, 
in these past few weeks, they just, it seems like everything's right there for me in those four contemplations. In, in our, so the Lojong system is a, is a Tibetan tradition and, um, but you know, not apart from any Bodhisattva school of Buddhism or really any, it's, it's applicable anywhere that anyone wants to develop compassion. In our, in, in our school of Zen, we chant the Metta Sutta, which includes the line, just as a mother watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind, should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. This is a foundational teaching in, in Buddhism, actually, in all schools of Buddhism. The Metta Sutta is known to be probably the oldest sutra and, 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 and is essential in Zen practice. Um, especially to balance out the tendency to get a little lost in the <laughs> in the cerebral stuff. Just as a mother watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things. To me, that is our that's that's the teaching that the way we receive the teaching of the preciousness of human life. There is no hierarchy. There is no life that is more or less valuable than another. This is the foundational teaching of Zen Buddhism. And our conventional life offers us a whole bunch of teachings of hierarchy of value. So we have to be super clear about that. Our collective conventional life uh, is constantly teaching us that, that there, some people are more and less valuable than others. So as practitioners, as Buddhists, as bodhisattvas, as people interested in compassion, we have to constantly work with the training we have received around that and challenge it every time. I was realizing like, you know, there's the, there's the big and systemic and institutionalized ones around elevating and diminishing based on race, based on gender, based on income based on notoriety, based on, on power, based on education levels. I mean, all these different ones that we're told. Um, but it happens even when we judge other people's behavior. When we think about how, how deep this conception of individualism and competition is woven, especially if we were raised in the United States, competition is woven into our sense of our communal relationships to each other, constantly making micro hierarchies of value. And we have to work very diligently to, to uh, challenge that and counteract the impact of that being foundational in our development as human beings. Um, I'm assuming that everyone knows about the George Floyd and his death at the hands of the police. And um, that there, so that there were eight minutes and 46 seconds while he was on the ground and his neck was underneath the knee of an officer, which I heard, I heard that number a number of times. I heard the story a number of times. Um, in different contexts. Then one time I heard the story told that um, in the last two minutes of his life, he was unresponsive. And, and I don't know what was happening for the officer who was in power in that moment and was, and was killing him. But when I heard that the last two minutes he was unresponsive, what, what lit up in my heart was, oh, he wanted him to die. Because I think a normal human response to an unresponsive person is to help. I don't know what was happening for that officer. I, I think it is safe to say he left, and I don't know when, maybe he left a very long time ago, but he left being in relationship to other, this other human being 
as an equally valuable human life. I think it's fair to say that, you know, this was, if this was his child under his knee, he would have responded differently. If this was his mother under his knee, he would have responded differently. So somewhere along the way, this person left being in an equal relationship. Maybe he never knew, maybe in his lifetime, he's never, he's never known, or maybe that was squeezed out of him a long time ago. Um, but I think that the relationship, being in a relationship of equity to all human beings is our responsibility as human beings. In, in terms of our practice, um, it's essential. It, it's the foundational idea of a bodhisattva vow, you know that I vow to save all beings and to stay in that non, that, that non-dualism. It's not dualism doesn't even do it justice, you know, in the non-separation of the value we have for our own lives or the people we cherish and the value we have for all beings and all lives, all human beings. And actually in the Metta Sutta, it says, says all living things. That's like, that's high level. <laughs> If nothing else, we need to do it for other human beings. So for me, um, this speaks to the, the preciousness of human life and how we engage that practice, how we engage that contemplation and that reality and that foundational teaching in our practice. In, in the Buddhist context, the value of human life, the, the worth of human life, and this preciousness that is being referred to, um, is it's not conditional. It doesn't depend on any status or any characteristic. The context for the preciousness is that to be a human being means that we both have the capacity to feel and reflect. And, that, and those two things together and that in, in Buddhist cosmology, that's very distinct to the human realm. It's kind of, it's quite different than the animal realm or the, the, these other realms where other things become more prominent, fear or pain or pleasure become more prominent. In the human realm, there's this like, there's a balance of pain and joy and there's the capacity to reflect on it. And because of that, a human existence is um, sort of like the ripest thing in the, in the cosmos for cultivating wisdom. And, and this is why we cherish human existence. Everybody has this capacity to feel and to reflect on it. And because we have that, we learn, we can learn and we can, and we deepen in our wisdom. And we cherish human life because all human beings have this capacity. So, one of, so, when, so to engage this daily contemplation of the preciousness of human life, um, we, we can just have that thought every morning or something. <laughs> it's great to do the four daily contemplations. And then also diligently challenge every time, every moment that we see thoughts of uh, somebody being better than somebody else. Every time we see that, you, we challenge that because we need to stay close to the equity of, of human value and worth. Um, I'm, I'm gonna not talk about them in the correct order. So I'm gonna jump to number three, which is the potency of karma. And karma, I think, you know, karma is a very elusive and complicated teaching. <laughs> The, the, the machinations of karma are beyond, we don't have the full enough view of what's happening to really understand karma in a human lifetime anyway. Um, but we, but what the contemplation, so the contemplation isn't that we understand or exactly can predict or name what karma, karmic movements, but that we, um, we abide in the deep faith in how in, intense and potent our karma is, how our act, the activities 
of our body, speech, and mind create the world. So we are always, as Buddhists, we're always diligent about that. We don't think that, that um, it doesn't matter what we do. We understand it matters what we do. And I think attending to our, car, our, our activity, our karmic activity in the world, in the on the physical plane, so like action of our body, um, our practice in Zen really supports that. We're, we're, we're constantly doing, um, you know, and we do like in, a, in more ritual, like in a monastic setting in Zen, there's all these ritualized forms and there's all these physical forms we engage with. We are learning how to uh, be choiceful with, the, with our body, with the actions of our body. They can seem kind of silly and nitpicky, but one of the things that they're cultivating in a human body is being deliberate with what we do with our body. This is kind of the grossest form of karma to work with, karmic activity. Our speech is a little more subtle and it happens a little more quickly and it's a little harder to, to work with. I, I wanna be careful about saying control because we can't totally control it. <laughs> not even, not our physical movements and not our speech and, not, and certainly not our thinking, but we can be choiceful with it. And we can work, you know, if we, if we do this kind of grosser practice with our physical body, then we can work toward um, being more choiceful with our speech and, and less harmful with our speech and more deliberate and lining our speech up more with our values than just spewing out con conditional, conditioned stuff. You know? But our thinking is both the most subtle, the most challenging and the most important realm to attend to in terms of karmic impacts in the world. And especially around racism and racial conditioning it's, it's the mind that we need to, we all need to work with. And if we're white, we need to work with it, it with extra diligence because of, because of the conditioning we've received. So I want to talk briefly about um, Amy Cooper. I'm going to look and see if people, do people know the story about Amy Cooper in Central Park? Yeah, so that there's a bird watcher in Central Park. Is anyone saying no? There's a couple of people saying no. Okay, so just briefly, um, there's a there's a, another viral video in, in the world that is um, the, the story is a, a black American man bird watcher is in Central Park watching birds, and there's a white American woman who is letting her dog off a leash. Uh, they both have the last name Cooper, just coincidentally. Um, so Christian Cooper is the man in this situation, and Amy Cooper is the, the woman who is white. <laughs> and he says to her, uh, could you please put your dog on the leash because it's disturbing the birds and I'm trying to watch the birds. And it's a rule in the park that you have your dog on the leash. And she is, I, I believe this happens before the video starts, but he, she becomes incensed. And um, she is very upset that he's calling her out on this. And she says to him, so he starts filming because he's a black man in America. <laughs> and there's a white woman who's upset and he knows that this is a volatile situation. He starts filming her on her phone. Now she's really getting incensed. And she's like, you can't tell me, I don't know what she's, I can't remember her exact words, but at some point she begins repeating over and over, I'm gonna call the police. I'm gonna tell them an African man is threatening me. And she says this repeatedly. There's no doubt that this woman is super clear about a, a number of things, including her race, his race, and their respective relationships to the police. And she's weaponizing that. And it's really, and she's, and she gets more and more agitated. I was thinking about this. I did watch this video and I was thinking about this the other day and I thought, <laughs> An accurate call to the police would be, would have been, I'm in Central Park. My bird watching neighbor has called me out on violating a rule and I want you to come here. <laughs> but because of how race works in the United States, like I was thinking, you know, if we, if she could have just gone with the stereotypes and the biases we have about bird watchers, you know, not like a group of threatening people but because race trumps everything, because everything is racialized. She's not looking at her neighbor who's a bird watcher. 
She's looking at a black man and she's looking at him from the perspective of a white woman who I'm gonna to venture to guess has not done a lot of investigating about her racial conditioning. Because the level with which she's incensed that he's even talking, like we all, nobody likes to be called out, you know, when we're doing something naughty. <laughs> and yet like, there's something about her reaction that has this feeling in it, like, how dare you speak to me? It really, you can feel it in, or it, it, to me, it looks like that's there. So she is in, she is not, she too has like left a relationship of parity and equal, of equity with this other human being that shares the park with her. And she's in a hierarchy of placing herself in a higher value. And she does it like, she, she, she might as well have pulled out a gun and stuck it in his face, you know, like, because to say, I'm gonna call the police and I'm gonna say it's a black man who's threatening me is to threaten his life. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's excruciating to watch this video and I actually really recommend doing it. <laughs> and I recommend it as a practice that we, um, that like, like ground in the preliminaries, like sit in Zazen for a few minutes, turn the video on, watch the video. And if you can watch, watch if there's a wanting to pull away from her behavior and have a feeling of judgment or a feeling of distance or a feeling of like, I can't believe it, or I would never, and try to stay intimate with the parts of us that have received the same training that she has received that, that says that devalues his life because he's a black man and is incensed because he's a black man speaking to her. And, and I would, I think it just could be, it can be this, a tool of working with our karmic conditioning to watch it and to not leave and not, not want to lift off and distance ourselves from him. A few days ago, I was walking in, in Regal Park, a, a park that's near our house with our son. And our, and our son is uh, Samoan and I am unambiguously white. And he's realized lately, we've had this conversation lately about understanding like white, you know, we were like, we were, I was wearing a white shirt and we were realizing like, I'm not actually white, right? Like I'm tannish and I'm spotted. Um, but we, he and I were talking about how I'm white in the terms that we use in the United States. I'm unambiguously white, you know? And, um, and then there's black and blackness. And he realized for himself that he's brown. You know, there's white, black and brown. These are, you know, huge and ridiculously overgeneralized categories. But they exist and they're relevant, you know, and he and he's locating himself racially. So we were walking in Rago Park and um, I think it was probably in response to this. There was a woman out in the street and she sounded pretty unstable. Like she was having uh, probably some kind of psychiatric crisis and was and was yelling and was swearing and was getting a lot of people's attention and certainly got my son's attention and my attention. And he could feel his discomfort with her. He, he, was, no, he was afraid. She was a white woman. She wasn't very big. Um, that's what I could tell from a pretty far distance. And I just reassured him, you know, like, it's okay. It's okay. I, I, I don't, you know, people like that can be unpredictable. She's probably not gonna hurt you. You just give people some space when they're in that state. She's, she's probably dealing with some stuff in her mind that's difficult for her. Um, and then we walked around and about, maybe it was 10 minutes later, a sheriff's car was pulling into the park. And I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, I have made calls to the, to, to the police because in the lack of kind of anyone else to call when there's a mental health emergency, I have done that myself actually. Um, but I felt a little bit like uh, sad. And then a white woman who was in a, bare feet and a yoga outfit was striding across the park toward the police car and kind of waving. And it looked like she probably was the person who had called. And we're, my son and I are just standing here watching this whole thing from a distance. And I, and I realized like, we're, wa this, we're watching a thing. This is a thing that we're seeing here. This is not like a normal everyday occurrence. This is a very particular racialized thing that's happening. There's a woman 
who's white, who felt afraid of something and she called the police and she feels, and her striding toward the police guard. I mean, I don't know, I don't even know what she was calling about. I'm, I'm making the assumption that these two things that we saw were related. And I know that my son was making that assumption as well. And, and so we just had this conversation about like, you know, you know, not everybody feels like they can call the police. Not everyone is safe to call the police. There have been people in this country who call the police and end up being killed by the police. They're the people asking for help. And, and we didn't have a long conversation about that, but I felt like I could not leave him thinking that what he was seeing was a normal experience that everybody has. Because if I left him in that, I, it would be leaving him in white acculturation around the police and he's not a white person. And he, and, and actually, maybe if I was there with my daughter who was white, we would have had that same conversation. We're watching, we're watching this thing happen with police in, in the context of a, of a very specific racialized environment that we live in. So I think we, we need to examine the stuff we've been taught, the assumptions we have, the fears we have. Um, last week, Mary Mosin brought up the example of if, if you're walking down the street and somewhere in my heart, I was like, oh, please don't say that you see a black man coming. <laughs> But she, but she wanted to bring forward the example for her that, that was relevant for her if, that she was acknowledging. She did say, if you see a black man coming. Um, and what she described in her ex experience was studying that she clenched a little and, and paying attention to that and knowing that that came from conditioning that she's received, you know. It's not that, and I totally support the effort to stay in touch with what happens. I just don't, I don't want to normalize that it's that it's okay to feel afraid every time we see a black person. I don't want to normalize it anymore. I don't want to participate in it. And I don't want to act like it's okay for us to not deeply uproot that fear because people are dying because of that unexamined fear in white people. And in lots of people actually, it's not just white people that carry racist ideas and, and that association of criminality with, with blackness. And I do wanna ask us, you know, as bodhisattvas and as people interested in dealing with addressing and responding skillfully to the suffering of this world that we look deeply at where, where does that come from if that's there and that we challenge it actually. And that we stay in relationship in equity with one another. And, you know, the messages, especially there's been a lot of um, discussion, actually, there's been a lot of our kind of clarifying. There's racism, that's a big category, and there's anti-blackness, and that's particular in the United States, and it's extremely violent, and, and it kills people. And, um, and there are scholars like uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi, ex Kendi, is a good example who talks about his own internalized anti-blackness and how he uproots it as a as a black man. You know, so it's not particular only to white people. It's a it's a deeply held acculturated phenomenon, and as people who care about the suffering in this world, we can't pretend we don't have it anymore. <laughs> We've all got it. We've all been trained in it deeply and we can work with it over and over again. The first, the first point and the first slogan is resolve to begin. Resolve to begin and then resolve to begin again and then resolve to begin again, you know, and then train in the preliminaries and ground in the preliminaries again and again. And don't be surprised. I think one of the things we need to appreciate is a lot of our racial training came so far back in our developmental history that it's like the grooves are deep in the brain. Our adult and kind of contemporary mind can be pretty, can have values that are way more expansive than our reductive childhood mind, but the grooves are still there. Those grooves of hierarchies of values, those grooves of diminishment, 
grooves of anti-blackness are in there. They're deep in there. So don't, you know, don't be discouraged when you, we strive to be equitable and we strive to be in relationship and we strive to be people of uh, valuing all human beings that they still emerge. Start over again, at, inquire into it. Where did you come from? Where did you come from thought that makes one person better than another? That, that says one thing is beautiful and one thing is not. That all these, all these thoughts, every little subtle one. When I was thinking about like, you know, to be a, to be a practitioner, is to be diligent all the time and like to be really like get in there in the nitty gritty of our brains. And, and you know, we do know that brain activity requires a lot of carbohydrates. <laughs> it's like, this might be hard if you're like on a keto diet. <laughs> Eat enough calories so that you can really do this intensive work of the mind that is going to uh, go way back in there and deal with the traumas and the, and the divisions that were made way back in the, the, the inner parts of our mind. To me, that, kind, that commitment is to honor the potency of karma, to honor the potency of the karma of the mind and, and the karma of cultural conditioning and the way it shows up in the mind. The more I've been doing this, the more... Uh, you know, so I think if we, one of the things we're, we're being requested to do by people who are, uh, particularly people who are anti-racist is just to not get caught in the idea, like I'm not racist. Because <laughs> if we get caught in the idea of not being racist, we can't deal with the racist thoughts that we have. And I can say, the more open I've become in my own mind to the racist conditioning that I have, the more I, I experience like, whoa, there are moments where I'm like, I cannot believe that that thought just went through my mind. There, it's repellent. But at least I feel the gratification that it made it through to my consciousness. Because as long as I had the identity lid on it, that like of not being racist, I didn't see them at all. I, I couldn't, the thoughts, they would impact my behavior, but they wouldn't make it up, you know, like past the lowest level of my awareness. And we do this, and we do this inquiry as if people's lives depend on it, because people's lives depend on it. Because white people being afraid is holding back. Well, no, actually, for actually, it's holding back transformational reality for sure. But more than that, people are dying because of it, and more importantly, and more immediately, violence is being perpetrated. Now, I've heard these. I've heard people talking about how they you know, the quote, violence of the property damage in, in protest, but it's like, who cares <laughs> about replaceable stuff? What, what we as bodhisattvas care about is irreplaceable human beings. We, you know, we don't want people's businesses to be trashed and their livelihoods to be taken from them, but irreplaceable human beings, the violence against them is way more important than, a, than broken windows. The other, ooh, sorry, it's getting a little long, <laughs> but I do have a couple more things to say. The truth of, of suffering is the, the fourth of the four daily contemplations. And in that one, in this context, I want to just recognize that we, um, the process of dismantling our conditioning is painful. Looking at our histories and the things, the ideals of this country that we thought were beautiful and the heroes of our childhood and, um, you know, our own images of ourself, it is painful to revise around all of that. And, and relearn. It is painful to leave the confines of what's known and comfortable. And there's the truth of suffering. Our life involves pain. And in fact, our pain, our capacity to feel it, and our reflection on it is our cultivation of wisdom. Um, one morning in our, we do uh, daily zazen, weekday zazen, 
one morning I shared with the group that the evening before I had driven through town in Sebastopol and there's just one woman. She was a, my guess was she was probably in her late sixties, a white woman. She looked pretty conventional. She was standing on the corner by herself with a cardboard piece of cardboard that said black lives matter on it. And it really touched me that she was just there by herself. This was maybe about over a week ago. And I mentioned it in the morning and, and various, everyone in, had different responses to it. And I asked Peggy if I could share this story. Um, but Peggy's response was to do that in Kotati. She went out one day. So this was maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, Wednesday. And, and uh, held up a sign. Do you wanna say Peggy what your sign said? Oh. You're, un you're unmuted. So racial equality helps us all. Yeah. And Peggy did that by herself, which I just bow to the courage of that, you know. There, there are people who are super threatened by this. And then the next day she went again, and there were 17 people there. Oh, one of the things I think was important was that Peggy came the next morning and said, I did this and it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I really felt it. Like, of course it's uncomfortable, it's super vulnerable. It's vulnerable to make a statement. It's vulnerable to be alone in our bodies and making a statement about things that people are super reactive to. And, and she did it. And then the next day there were 17 people there because they saw her doing it. You know? Both the the both both the discomfort and the accumulating of other people um, was inspiring to me. One of the things we have to be willing to do is to be in discomfort if we're going to challenge racial inequity and violence. I woke up one morning with uh, Rumi's poem, Don't Go Back to Sleep in my head as I woke up. Don't go back to sleep. There's this longing I think that we all have, uh, or, or some parts of us anyway, and it's a natural longing to have that we would kind of wake up from the pandemic and quote, go back to normal. And so many people, especially people of color are saying that normal is a world of terror. Let's not go back to normal. And I think one of the, I don't know, there's, there's lots of opinions out there as I'm sure we've all encountered about what's, quote, what's different now? There's like a whole <laughs> panels on what's different now. Why are, how come everybody's finally upset about this stuff? And part of me is like, who cares? <laughs> it's just good that we are. But what, one of the features is that, um, you know, the, the, the engine of dominant culture, the, the movement, I heard a woman in the park this morning say, I'm not ready to get back on the treadmill. It's like, yeah, no, the treadmill is actually a function of oppression. <laughs> it disconnects us from our own humanity. And in doing that, it disconnects us from the humanity of others. It makes us very difficult for us to bear witness. It makes it very difficult of the stresses of our life. You know, we, here's another kind of hierarchy we do. We elevate work responsibilities and things like that over racial and social justice, you know, well, I don't, I would go to that, but I have a business trip or I have a meeting, right? You know, it's like, and, and our, and I've just been experiencing for myself how the stresses of our quote, normal pace of life are a function of denial. They're a way that it keeps us removed a little bit because we're just drowning in our own personal responsibilities. How could we possibly show up? So I think um, this pain there is, there is pain and there is discomfort in staying in the unknown and in, in letting go of our conditioning and in challenging that um, and in seeing the thoughts that go through our head that we would never have expected to be there, all, all of this stuff. And it's painful until it becomes liberative. And then even the pain becomes something that we're willing to go into because we understand that this is a liberative process. The last contemplation is the inevitability of death. Life is finite. Our breath will stop one day. There are only so many things we can do. There's only so much that we can affect in this lifetime. 
we have to, that's a daily contemplation. And we have to kind of, in this moment we're given now where things are a little more slowed down, get our values lined up, you know, get clear about like what matters. I keep hearing interviews with people of color like, well, what would it look like if these changes could happen? And it's, <laughs> people say things like, I could go for a jog and not fear for my life. I could have a broken tail light and not fear for my life. I could pull out my cell phone and not fear for my life. I could go for a jog in a white neighborhood and not fear for my life or not even, not even be molested, you know, not even be disrupted. We are totally capable of creating that possibility in this world. We could have, there, there is a possibility to have policing that is not based on violence. There are these, there's been a lot of work that's happened in the last five years about policing and about kind of tracking it. There have been these experiments. There's one in Oregon where they enlisted mental health workers to respond to 911 calls and they respond to one out of five calls. And now they can show how much less use of force there is how many less deaths there are because mental health workers are responding to what are really mental health crises, not criminal events, you know. The criminalization of homelessness, of mental health issues, of addiction and drug use is inappropriate, you know. Militarized policing of people that have mental health issues is inappropriate. Militarized policing of people that have economic challenges is inappropriate. We can imagine actually something quite different and, we, and you, it, it's happening in the world, you know. We can enact these things. So I wanna offer, if nothing else, that we use our practice as a ground to really uh, nourish ourselves in and that we, so that we don't turn away, we don't go back to normal, we don't go back to sleep. If we, uh, I don't know how it is for all of you, but I feel like there's just this deluge of information, of things to read, of things to do, and even just of the grief and pain in the situation itself. If we're feeling overwhelmed, sometimes we might need to take a little break, but I would offer that the best remedy for feeling overwhelmed is to do something, even if it's small, do something. When we're overwhelmed, we feel a lack of agency. When we engage, we, we feel our agency. One of the most dangerous stories I think in, especially in liberal white America is that we, that this is beyond us, that we don't have the power to change this. It's way bigger than us. Or even, even we're taught that it's just human nature. People just hate other people. That is not fundamentally true. That's just my opinion, but there's also studies that show that people don't hate the other. This is a very, this has been a very carefully constructed thing in the United States. And we can challenge it. Rumi's poem is, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you, don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill, door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Thank you. That might be my longest talk ever. Thank you for staying with me. <laughs> I know it's hard on Zoom, especially. Oh, it started. <laughs> um, so please bring um, any thoughts or comments or questions. You can just unmute yourself and then um, and ask or say. Um, it's me. Um, thank you for your talk. And what brought this to mind was a Corin's talk a couple of weeks ago about Mara 
And I think that's especially relevant because I think that um, fear plays such a big part in this. And I think of uh, Amy Cooper and she was being belligerent, but underneath that all, you know, was real fear. And I think that needs to be taken into account in all these actions and talked about more. Yeah. And examined. Statistically speaking, in the United States, um, if you want it, like, you know, if you're afraid of criminal activity, white men perform more criminal actions than their group by quite a high number. Incarceration rates don't show that, but it's like, you know, like that, just that statistic alone can kind of help us, like, where does the, the black criminal thing come from, you know? And there's lots of places it comes from. It's, it's a very complicated and, and in some cases, super deliberate history. Um, it's just false, you know? And it's something that we can question. Um, well, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Just to expand on what Holly said, um, I think that the focus, it feels like the focus on police um, kind of gives, lets all of us off the hook a little bit. And I think in our communities, the our upper middle class communities, the total intolerance, fear, and fear mongering over crime, personal safety, and pub, and, pers and especially private property, um, how and here in Santa Rosa, where I live, if you read the police blotter, it's more often it's almost always a Hispanic name. And it's, you know, most crime is committed by young men between the ages of 16 and 25, say. And if you come from a poor family and you have very few opportunities and you're oppressed and all these things, you know, it's like, how did you think the police kept them from smashing your window and stealing your car? I mean, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I think they've been under a lot of pressure to suppress crime and, and systematic, you know, oppression of these communities is the result. And so, I mean, we have a, a responsibility, I think, in the kind of pressure that we put on the police and on the legislators. Um, this is, this is the result. So. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, the non-duality of each individual and what we call the police, you know, <laughs> and that relationship between that we all co-create, we co-create the society. We co-create the expectations about, quote, safety and, and what's criminal and all of it. Yeah, thank you, Kiki. Um, Dojin, so um, I've had this, you know, Diana, I've been looking at all these protesting and everything that's going on, like in Santa Rosa and here and there. And there's the issue we have is that, you know, we'd like to get involved because we used to go to all the protests before the virus. But with the virus and, you know, we're in our 70s, we have to stay away from crowds. So there's this frustration and then there's this guilt because, you know, we want to protest but we don't want to be in crowds and we don't want to get sick, you know? So how can I keep my head, you know, not feeling guilty and frustrated, things like that. And as far as going out on the street, I admire Peggy for doing that, but um, I've never been able to really put myself out there by myself in front of public. I, I had terrible stage fright, you know, and it would be, really, really, really hard to do that. So your advice would be appreciated. <laughs> I, what, what first came to my mind was, was Zenju's words, come down here and be still on the earth, let loose shame, rage, guilt, grief, pain, and make a river of it. So from a spiritual perspective, there's that offering. <laughs> and and I, and uh, yes, it's, and I think that it's, we have to be reasonable about our, uh, about um, coming together physically in this time, for sure. We are, there's been so, there's been a, so many requests that what we're hoping to do and actually invite uh, every, everyone who's interested to give their input in is um, having a resource on our website where there's um, a few actions every week 
one of them will be something you can do from home. You know, because it's because you know you're not alone, John. There's many people that have that situation where it's actually it's not tenable to be and and it's and it's not responsible actually to be in a crowd of people. And um, and and then there'll be things that we can do in the community for those who are able to do that. And and you know, there's a real there's a strongly held desire in many of the demonstrations I've seen that that are. To, to socially distance and be super careful about it and be re and be respectful of it, you know. And still, um, for many of us, staying at home is going to just be what has to happen health-wise. So, yeah. So we're hoping we can offer, we can kind of gather our collective wisdom around what's possible, and offer some possibilities. We could. Um, one one thought was we can put signs in our car windows if we want to do that. And there's other ways. You know, there's lots of ways. To, to be involved that don't involve um, being on a street corner with a sign. So even though those are energizing in a certain way. So we're hoping that that we can ask all of you to pull our ideas. Maybe we'll, we'll offer a time that there's a meeting of it, but you can also just email us with ideas and have a weekly announcement of like, here's the possibilities. Um, because there's so much, another thing we realize is there's so much out there that people are, it almost is like, it's, what's that expression like drinking from a fire hose <laughs> um so we'll just try to offer a few and uh yeah so so please bring those um in different ways that you want to offer them thank you i think uh it's a good idea i think i'll put a sign in the back window of my car yeah that, would, that, that would be, be at least something thank you yeah something we can do as a song because so many people in our sangha have to be um, more diligent in terms of the health risks. Is there anything else? Um, I'd say that, um, you know, as part of a white population, uh, we have been fed this whole, I mean, w with the digital media, um, where it, it's a safer country now for, the, for a white person than ever before, but you'd never know that. Um, and then with the militarization of the police and also the access to uh, all the weapons in this country, it's going to be such a phenomenal uh, transition to back to just the simple thing of, of having a, 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 not a police response, but a, a, a medical response to someone who is sick uh, and raving like in Regal Park. Um, yeah, we have a lot ahead of us. And thank you for your talk today. It was so appropriate. <laughs> I think it, it is complicated and there are ways it's not, you know. <laughs> Just change the budget, get mental health workers. So, Sonoma County is deluged with therapists. <laughs> it is a resource we have plenty of, you know. <laughs> get them on the police force. Or you know, or get them or make a different force. But anyway. Dojin. Yes. It's Annette. Um, I think something, thank you very, very much. And also something I need to keep reminding myself because it's always in reflection, <laughs> but how to stay awake even when we're doing something you know it's like going down and being in the square the other night and it wasn't a dramatic time it was a fairly quiet time at one of the days and then I'm leaving walking to my car and there's on a quiet corner is a black woman sitting in a wheelchair and she's saying what is that you have and I had brought a I really wanted a poster this time so anyway I had a a picture of the Buddha on a cardboard. So it was just something that, that brought ease, but then it felt a little vulnerable in the square because it felt a little, oh my God, I hope this isn't proselytizing, but not at all. People <laughs> saw it, they got it, they smiled. But when I passed the woman, she says, what is that? And I showed her and she said, thank you. And then I just moved on. And I thought, she's thanking me. I didn't, I could ask her, what are you thanking me for? Or thank you. And so there's just in the reflecting of staying conscious of 
a potential for interacting, even in a simple, unthreatened, quiet street corner. You know? And then I walked out on my porch last night and there were police cars outside, sheriff's cars. And I went out, you know, it was something going on up the street. And I walked out a bit, but I didn't, I didn't go very far. And I didn't carry my phone and I didn't, I just went back and sat on my porch and they dispersed. <laughs> and that's, I don't think that's enough. I don't, I really, so again, in reflection, I think, you know, I could risk a little more and go forward and show myself as an observer. It wasn't even fear that prevented me. It was like, hmm, must be much further up the street. So thank you. The intensity of observation and engagement, it's, um, it, I need it. It's a constant that I need to be aware of. And I appreciate your, your lessons. We have to uh, challenge and support, you know, our, our, the, to the tendency, especially for white art, the training we've received to disengage and retreat to comfort is, it's a real thing. It's just, it's just a real thing to contend with. And I think also, and also we have to, um, we can't get it right. You might've just totally let that woman off the hook. You know, she probably didn't, maybe she didn't want a big interaction. She just want to say thanks. That's it. You know what I mean? You never know. You, you know, if you'd done the other thing, you could walk away being like, oh, I was like the needy white lady being like, oh, I'm so glad you're talking to me. <laughs> you know. So who knows? We cannot, we can't, we don't do, we don't want to engage because we're going to get it right. We don't want, we also don't want to engage because we're going to be better than other white people. <laughs> I can feel that around in the ether and it's like, you know what white people, and I'm saying this to those of us who are white, like our training around competition and one-upping each other as needs to go out the, out. <laughs> we need to let go of that. It does not serve here. We need to like be in humility and in, and in relationship and not try to elevate ourselves or diminish ourselves. And, and we have to safeguard against that. So that's that same thing, like stay in equity with ourselves as well. Okay. Uh, Vicki, were you on meeting? Yeah, um, actually I um, was wondering where, is this, is this talk in YouTube also? Is it available? I think so. Or do we wait? Go to like the the Stone Creek um, website for it. Yeah, we'll we'll get some form of it will be available at some point. <laughs> it should be available on YouTube. Yeah, I think the YouTube one's available right away. Although we, we usually try to edit it a little, and we have a recording of it. Yeah. It's, it's so the YouTube one, we just um how how do we access it through YouTube? Just Stone Creek Zen Center YouTube or Our weekly the weekly email has the Stone Creek. Zen Center YouTube channel, quote. Okay, got it. Sometimes From there's the a little delay. It's usually a few minutes behind what's happening here. Yeah. Oh, that, that's also not bad. our website to the YouTube channel. Yeah. It's just so important. I want to share it, you know, to so many people. I mean, this was a really important talk, and I really appreciate it. I'm also wondering the poem, Dojin, that um, you you know you shared in the beginning is there can we get a written copy of that somewhere sure yeah but i can just tell you I'll, I'll send it but i also um it's in lion's roar okay I, and, it's, right. and it's called darkness is asking to be loved if you google that okay got it thank you so much thank you all very much can i can I just toss one more idea in there? And that is, I have a friend in Sebastopol who I've been texting back and forth with, and her son is a policeman here in Santa Rosa. And I know that our concern back and forth is that, you know, is he safe? Uh, well, he was on a side street, and so that was good. Um, I think that, you know, we have to keep that aspect going on too, that, you know, 89, 90, 99% of all police are, are, you know, they have mothers. They have people who are worried about they have them. mothers and sisters and, and wives uh, and brothers. Yeah. 
as do everybody, right? Like, and this is where, and this is where the tricky, um, so to, so to say Black Lives Matter, you know, and I'm not making this up. This is not my opinion. This is what the founders of Black Lives Matter are talking about. Like that needs to be articulated because it hasn't been articulated in the actions and realities of our country. Um, and the, the, the desire to say all lives matter, you know, is, um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not that that's not true, right? Like I'm actually just teaching this thing from our tradition, like all the preciousness of human life is inherent, it's unconditioned, it's unconditional. And there needs to be, we need to pause and understand that that this that the equity of Black Lives needs to be elevated until that until it's until it changes. If that makes sense. All all people. There is nobody in this world who's nobody. Everybody has a mother. You know that's really that it's it's. I mean I don't know. It's funny that we have to say it. You know, but it's it's a truth that that is um, indelible and it's also super important that we don't um, leap over into the humanity of everybody at the exclusion of realizing like the the very particular kind of violence you know that's being perpetrated against black americans and the and the history of it and the longevity of it and the inequity of it if that makes sense i just yeah and we can and we can also treat police officers. There are black police officers. <laughs> you know, go on, like it's a super complicated situation. Yeah. And and our job is to be in in relationship to the humanity of ourselves and all beings. Thank you. <laughs>